I thank you again for coming to the meeting this evening. And uh, what we are looking at, as has been intimated, are themes that are in the uh, so-called upper room ministry, perhaps more accurately the, the farewell ministry of the Lord Jesus and John's gospel. Uh, yesterday evening we looked at uh, the work of the paraclete in the upper room. This evening we're going to be looking, looking at parables that run across the upper room. God willing, tomorrow uh, we look at some of the prophetic truths that uh, characterize the upper room. Some rather extraordinary, I, I hope you'll agree. Uh, but at any rate, this evening we're looking at uh, the idea of parabolic teaching or uh, allegorical teaching, I suppose it might be called, in the upper room. So, uh, to that end, we'll read in John's Gospel, please, in chapter 13. So, John 13, and we'll read, uh, just for connection's sake, from the first verse, which is really where uh, the, 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 uh, the upper room ministry properly so-called begins. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, um, Mr. Newbury suggests, I think correctly, in the light of chronological issues that arise in this section, it's not so much that the supper has ended, uh, but rather that it's during supper. So uh, it's during the uh, upper room Passover feast and the events that followed it that this takes place. And during supper, the devil, having now put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <coughs> Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. So the, the point of that little section there is the word washed. It might not be altogether obvious from uh, at least the authorized text is that that uh, carries the thought of somebody that has been washed all over. So washed from top to toe, a complete all over bath. He that is completely washed Needeth not save to wash his feet. Point being that you can have a thoroughgoing wash in the morning or maybe you guys take showers. And uh, during the course of the day, you'll get your hands dirty. Uh, you don't, at least, not where I come from, you don't go back to the shower because you've got your hands dirty. You go to the sink or the basin. And so the idea is here that you don't need to do the same thing all over again because you've uh, um, been contaminated in some way during uh, the day. So the point he's making is that he, Peter, uh, is already completely washed and in that circumstance the need that he has is not another all over bath but rather uh, a foot wash. Uh, but it's clean every whit and ye are clean but not all, meaning not all of you. And that is a very clear indication that he well knows the position of Judas. So after he had washed their feet he had, and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. 
Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Now, the point he's making there is that he, the Lord Jesus, is a servant, and uh, he is explaining to them that, uh, that the role of the servant that he has adopted is one that he is entitled to take up and ought to take up because he is doing so in submission to his master or his Lord, the Father that has sent him. And then he says, if you know these things, happy or blessed are ye if you do them. And then there's a number of references to the betrayer and so on and who he should be. Uh, he indicates that one of them uh, is the betrayer. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask, that's to say, he beckoned to John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, that is John, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, which is a small piece of bread usually, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, who we learn here is the son of a man called Simon. And after the sop, notice this, it doesn't say a devil entered into him, but Satan, which is quite interesting evidently for this critical phase uh, in uh, satanic purposes. He will not entrust this particular role to any of his minions, but I do believe this is what uh, the passage is teaching, is that Satan himself um, in a remarkable way, enters into Judas. And then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Then there's a reference to the misunderstanding of the disciples who hadn't quite worked out what was going on. Verse 30, he then having received the sop, went immediately out. And here is one of John's characteristic flourishes. And it was night. And then the last of the references is found in John 15. John 15. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he, that is the father, taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he, that is the father, purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, you're clean. Now, interestingly enough, that word clean there is exactly the same word as we've been reading about in connection with the basin and the towel, the cleaning of the feet. It's the, a word that has got the idea of cleansing. And he's now using it in connection with the pruning process that one would um, engage in if you're pruning uh, vines. Now, you're purged or cleansed or pruned through the word Logos, or Logon, which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, just a little thing I noticed today. Have you ever heard of a man called Polycarp? He was the Bishop of Smyrna in the 2nd century AD. Um, poly means many. Carpos means fruit. And Polycarp's name literally means much fruit. And his father knew the Apostle John. <laughs> I discovered today that a lot of people think that the first bishop so-called of Smyrna, Polycarp, a very famous man, was named after this verse. The fruit bearer, he he was the polycarp, the fruit bearer, he bore much fruit. But I didn't come here to Midland Park to tell you that, but now you know it. So look at that little phrase there, much fruit is in the in the, in, in, in its syntactical order, is carpos polyus, for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them. And cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, <clears throat> ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. 
Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now, that's all that we'll read from the good word of God. And we'll try and make swifter progress tonight than we made last night. Now, I did say that I thought last night was quite doctrinally heavy. That always kind of is a difficulty for some, because not everybody's got the kind of mind adapted to that sort of thing. So this evening we're going to try and look at it, um, look at themes in the upper room of a more practical nature, although there will be one or two issues along the road that will require your careful attention. Now what I want to do is look at these, I've called them parables under three headings. So we're going to look at the issues of cleansing, which is what really is the central issue when we look at the Lord Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then uh, we're going to look at the sop. You will have picked up that uh, the Lord Jesus acted symbolically, acted in a parabolic way where what he did was symbolic of some pretty profound truths when he washed the disciples' feet. But then he did something else that was of a symbolic nature. And this time it wasn't directed at the 12 apostles. It was directed at one, Judas. And he, in a very symbolic way, he, he uh, dipped a piece of, of bread. It's usually supposed to be, that's what you do, a sop is a thing you dip in order to soak, soak up a liquid. Um, though the word strictly speaking means a morsel, but he dipped it in, it may have been a stew. <coughs> Some people think it may have been a preparation of herbs. We don't exactly know what they had on the Passover table that night, but a liquid in any event, and he dipped it, and then he gave it to Judas uh, as as they tell us a gesture of favour and respect. That is what you do when you've got a guest in your house. I, I'm going through a phase at the minute in my life where I'm fed first. Back home, I'm last. But in, in America, I get fed first. And I'm getting some nice food served up to me, getting taken out to more restaurants this past fortnight than I've been in for a while, which is great. But it's, it's oftentimes... Uh, how we, how we treat guests, how we, how we feed them, the kind of food we give them, uh, and that sort of thing is a way we show our respect to people. And the remarkable thing is here is, and we're going to try and just teach a little of the truth here, that as a gesture, you would say, of affection, and as a gesture that the others looking on would have, would have interpreted as one of, of respect, he puts into the hand of Judas the sop that he dipped in the stew, and he took control. Now that's the thing I really want to get at, is that you need to appreciate that Judas was not in charge that evening. And that the Lord Jesus kind of took control of the situation, and he, by that act, when he gave it to Judas, as he says, says in a moment or two, that thou doest, do quickly. And remarkably enough, while we might look at the events of the betrayal as the Lord being overtaken by events, it is very clear and in point of fact that this symbolically is indicative of the Lord Jesus being in complete control of the events that led ultimately to his crucifixion. So we look at the idea of cleansing, look at the idea of the symbols that, of control, and then last of all in uh, chapter 15 we're going to look obviously at cutting. It's the Greek word catharsis. I think you still get um, cathartic um, um, operations that are designed to cleanse or purge in order that something may be uh, cut off or cleansed. So we're going to be looking at the, the, the catharsis or the cutting of the vine. I want so to begin with looking at this acted parable. There are some things you need to understand for all to kind of make sense. If you and I uh, were a guest in some Middle Eastern home and we had tramped the streets of Jerusalem or we'd walked down through the lanes of Nazareth or we'd uh, made a, a little bit of a journey to get to some house in Bethphage or Nain or Cana or any of these towns, if we were an invited guest, the first thing that we would probably be uh, shown as a, a mark of hospitality and respect is if there was a servant in the house or possibly even the lady of the house, what she would do was that she would provide a basin or a bowl of water 
and she would she would wash the feet of the visitors to her home. It was a it was a kind of it was a it was a mark of of Oriental courtesy. And actually, that cast interesting light on First Timothy five. You remember there was a very primitive form of of social security going on in the church back there in Ephesus in First Timothy five. Widows. Uh, they couldn't go and claim benefits or put in insurance claims, so they were taken into this role that's called the number, uh, no doubt administered by the church there. And, of course, they weren't going to allow anybody to be the beneficiary of church funds. They had entrance criteria that were, no doubt, again, administered by the elders. And one of the criteria, one of the marks of a woman who was thought to be worthy and therefore entitled to the uh, the benefits that the church could offer, if if she hath washed the feet of strangers. Now, I think probably what that means is not so much that she necessarily physically washed the feet of strangers, she possibly did do that, but the point is this, that this woman was worthy of the respect of the assembly and financial support because down through her life as a Christian, she had been characterized by a hospitable interest in those that came to her home. This was a courtesy that was extended, and the women of the house would do it. I'm not suggesting any of you, dear sisters, take up the, um, the habit of washing feet. I have tickly feet, so I particularly enjoy you handling my feet. But, um, but in, in these days when sandals were worn and dust and mud and that kind of stuff was a bit of an issue, um, washing the feet of a stranger was an act of common courtesy. Now, the difficulty was here is that nobody did that. So the most, the simplest act of courtesy had not been extended by any of the disciples to any other of the disciples. And so it would appear the feast had gotten underway. And they were reclining on the, uh, the, the, uh, the sofas, I guess you would call them, the, um, the couches that surrounded uh, the Passover table. And during supper, nobody having had the wish or the desire to to, uh, wash any of the disciples' feet, the Lord Jesus got up and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And it seems to me that actually he'd gotten quite a way into that task of washing and uh, he got to Peter eventually. And whether Peter was the third or the fourth or the ninth or the tenth of of the twelve, we don't know, but he, he... began to expostulate with Jesus. And I think what was embarrassing, Peter, was that he, the, here was the very man who he acknowledged as his master. And he knew it was deeply uncomfortable that the one he would have acknowledged as his Lord and master was washing his feet. And that, I think, was what the discomfort was for Peter. Now, that whole situation had emerged and had arisen for this simple reason, that none of them had been willing to wash the other disciples' feet. Now, you need to think about that as an assembly and as a Christian, is that none of them was willing or prepared to take the place of the servant. They all knew that it needed to be done. They all knew that it was a worthy cause. They all knew that it was a common courtesy, but they would have regarded it, I think, as a, as a mark of weakness and perhaps an acceptance of inferiority if they had begun the task of washing one another's feet. Now, another thing you need to grasp is if you harmonize these passages, it is almost certain, if you compare it with the synoptic records, that just before he washed their feet, they'd been having an argument. If you read the passages clearly, they were debating amongst themselves which should be the greatest in the kingdom. And they were arguing about what position of prominence they would enjoy when their saviour came to reign. That is the backdrop. And rather, what we see in this enacted parable, what he was doing, he was teaching them not by a, a ministry meeting or by a great oration, The parabolic teaching of the Lord Jesus is is enacted as he strips himself of his outer garments, perhaps in a loincloth. He takes up a towel, girds it round his waist, no doubt to stop the splashes and maybe to dry the feet of the disciples. And I I don't know, have you got a good imagination? I can just kind of hear this kind of uncomfortable silence. None of them really know what to say. 
And disciple after disciple after disciple, the Lord gets down. He takes the water. He pours it on their feet. He, he washes their feet. He takes the towel and dries their feet until eventually they get to Peter. And Peter can't stand it any longer. I shall never wash my feet. There's always one guy in the meeting like that. Always one guy. Oh, you're not going to do that me. And he kind of erupts in indignant uh, expostulation. Now, what I suppose we get from that is some pretty basic teaching, is that what the Lord Jesus, I think, just before Calvary, is teaching through this parable form is that we ought to serve one another. And the service here you'll appreciate is of the most menial kind, and it involves a courtesy being extended, an act of kind of basic hospitality. Now, I suppose that nearly all of you can see where I'm going with this, but I'm going to go there anyway. <laughs> is that we maybe don't these days wash one another's feet. Maybe there are cultures, they still do that. But you know, we can still put a meal on a table. We can still give somebody a ride in a car. We can still babysit some harassed mother's infant child when she goes to the doctor. And you know, sometimes we kind of think these things are beneath us. Or our interests are more important than their interests. And what this is teaching in parable form, remember this is, the, this is the, if we may speak again, par, the hands that made the universe. The hands that shortly would be pierced are hands that hold the feet of the disciples. And the Lord Jesus is just teaching you this evening. I don't know whether you're going to listen to him or not. It's not my call. I'm just suggesting to you that it's not really me that's telling you this, because I'm just kind of like sort of the conduit through which the truth of this passage flows. So it's not me so much. The Lord Jesus is teaching you this evening that you serve one another. And the way that you serve one another is oftentimes by affording one another the most basic of courtesies. And I just want to ask you are you a little bit like Peter tonight? Would you have stood up and stamped your feet and said, I can't do this? Or are we going to learn the lesson of the basin and the towel? Now, another thing I should appreciate is that the Lord Jesus nearly always taught on a number of different levels. The, um, the superficial teaching of uh, this acted parable, as he, <clears throat> in fact, uh, makes clear, is that he was here to serve. I mean, if we, we read it uh, together uh, there at the end, uh, verse number 15, for I have given you an example that you should do one, uh, that you should do as I have done to you. So that's the most basic lesson we learn here, is that we should mimic, as it were, the the attitude of the Lord. And then he says this, Verily, verily, I say, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And I think what he's saying here is he's pointing out that he was here as a servant. So they, they shouldn't actually be getting upset that he was kneeling at their feet. They maybe felt it was uncomfortable. They maybe felt it wasn't fitting or appropriate. But I think what he's really teaching here is while undoubtedly they should serve one another, they shouldn't imagine that it was wrong for him to serve. Now, once again, we need to get our thinking adjusted. You know, we sometimes think some people sort of get above service. Back home, I think one thing as an overseer there I, I always need to remember is when the whole car park needs swept and there's a bundle of people gathered up to do it on a Saturday morning, I should be there. Yeah? When the whole 
I, I'm not practical, by the way, so there are some, if the Saints in Mayfield saw me with a paint pot in my hand, they would snatch it off it, snatch it off me immediately. But, you know, I should be willing, no matter what my station in life, no matter what my status in, in the assembly is, I should be willing to do the work of the servant. And again, I'm just going to throw the challenge out to you. I hope this doesn't just sort of float over your head. Is that is? Are you characteristically a servant of the church? And that is to say, are you willing to get down at the feet of the smelly feet, if you will, of people who have all sorts of dirt and contaminants? Remember the kind of muck that he worked with? It was the muck of pride. That was what he was dealing with. The muck of selfish pride arguing about who should be the greatest. The muck of, a, of, of an unbelieving city, if you ask me where, where had the dirt and contamination come from, well it had come from the streets and lanes of the city through which they were marching that evening to the upper room. And what kind of muck and dirt was that? Well it was the, it was the dirt and the muck of a city that hated Christ. And that was the sort of issues that he was dealing with that evening. Because that then leads us into the, the deeper level and the more profound level of the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Now, that, that there is a deeper level is, is very, very clear, because you notice what he says in verse 7, Jesus answered and said unto them, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Now, I think what he's saying there is, I'm going to give you a very easy application of it. I am the servant before you. You ought to serve one another. That's the easy application but what he's pointing to he's reminding them after Calvary I think this whole evening took on a completely different complexion and you see what Calvary is and we must never forget it was essentially an act of cleansing uh, there are many things that one can say about Calvary uh, in typical teaching but one of the great images Old Testament images of the death of our Savior was that it effected a powerful cleansing and what he's saying here is when Peter, Peter actually just helped the Lord Jesus with his parabolic teaching along, because when Peter got upset, he said, well, if you are going to wash me and that is proper, don't just do my feet. I want to be in for a penny, in for a pound. I want you to do the whole thing. It's typical Peter, extravagant and over the top. So if you're going to, if it's okay to wash me, then don't just wash my feet, Lord. Wash me from top to bottom. Now, now, the Lord seizes on that and says, you know, Peter, you've hit the nail on the head because there is a very profound difference between a top-to-toe washing and foot washing. There is a big, big difference between the two. And that informs how he teaches it. For notice what he says, verse 10, Jesus saith to him, this is him teaching as a consequence of Peter's intervention, he that is washed from top to toe, if I just paraphrase it, needeth not save to wash his feet, but he's clean every whit, so there's an all-over cleansing for this man. He says, you're clean. But notice what he says um, when he uh, speaks to uh, them in verse number 8, when Peter says, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus and if I wash thee, now that is the word that means just to, just to wash the hands and the feet, a partial cleansing. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And what he's teaching here actually is positional truth. You know, you were cleansed on the day you were saved. There was a top-to-toe cleansing that will never need to be repeated again. The, the classic proof of that is in the Old Testament. When a priest was brought into the priesthood, in the middle of the camp, by Moses, Aaron and his brothers, Moses washed him from the, the top of his head to the soles of his feet, and then he put a linen garment on him, and then he anointed him with oil. And, you know, that was he was put into the priesthood on that day when he was cleansed from top to bottom, and it never happened again. That's Leviticus 8, verse 5 through 12. When the Levites were brought into service, and you know that every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. Are you familiar with that adage? So every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. The, the Levites, when they were brought into service, likewise also again, they were washed from top to bottom. And that is to be found in Numbers chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. And you know, when you and I were saved, we got a cleansing from top to bottom. And just as these men were brought into the priesthood and it never needed to be done again, we've been bathed, we've been cleansed, and it never needs to be done again. 
But one thing absolutely that needs to be done continually is a different kind of washing. And these priests that were washed from top to toe, you know where they were every day of life? They were washing a thing called the laver. It was just a kind of bowl filled with water. And as they worked at the altar, they, they got their hands covered with ash and blood and smeared with all of the uh, aspects, the ugly, unpleasant aspects of what it meant to work at an altar. And every time they offered, they would go to the laver and they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. And they would rid themselves of the contamination of the work in which they were engaged. He says that's the difference between the all-over cleansing when they became a priest and the, and the constant cleansing that priests require. You know, you and I need that. That's First John, by the way, and chapter 1. He's speaking to Christians. He calls them little children. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You Christians need forgiveness. Do you, do you know that? <laughs> sure you know it. You were forgiven when you were saved. You don't need to be forgiven again of your sins. I, I like to illustrate it this way. I'll just adapt it for American purposes. To come and work in this country, you need a... Green card, yeah? I think it's called the green card. You probably need a visa. So in order to work in this country, you need a couple of pieces of documentation. You put them in front of the guys at immigration control and they'll wave you through and you've got the right to work in this country. Now, what has happened? Am, am I a different guy when I get those pieces of documentation? Did my hair colour change? Nope. Did my weight alter? Nope. My IQ go up or down? Nope. Well, what happens? What's the difference? Why not before and yes after? What's happened? Well, it's very simple. Your status has changed. Your status, your status in the eyes of the government legally has altered. And from being disentitled, you become entitled. And you know, when you and I were saved, our status changed. This is not, by the way, practical truth. I don't become a better personal necessarily. Resources are made available to me to live a better life. But I don't overnight become a genius or a preacher or a, a, a spiritual giant, it just, it's, it's a recategorization of me. I am moved from being in Adam to in Christ. I acquire rights, I become a new man. And I am forgiven and cleansed. That is a different thing from practical cleansing. Now, is it possible that some of you Dear Christians, looking up at me this evening, have got contaminated today? Hmm. You look at something you maybe shouldn't have looked at. Saw something you would rather not have seen. Maybe thought something you wish you hadn't thought. And maybe right now at quarter to nine in the meeting, in Midland Park, you, you feel, you feel dirty. I'm not preaching at you. I know exactly what it feels like to be dirty. Now, what is the issue there? Well, just like the old priests, you know, they knew what to do. There was a vessel there between the brazen altar and the holy place. And if they felt dirty, they knew exactly what to do. They went there and they put their hands in it and they washed in the water. And the Bible is very clear that water is a powerful image of really two things. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the death of Christ cleanses us judicially and positionally, but there's a powerful continuing cleansing power in the death of Christ. 
And 1 John 1 and 7 says, if we confess our sins, that's what it's built on. Do you confess your sins? Are you in the habit of telling God when you go wrong? You know, the first step to cleansing is just to tell him. Name the sin. And seek the strength and cleansing that comes from the death of Christ. Another way, of course, the word of God is oftentimes linked with, with the Holy Scriptures, the still water. The running water in the Bible is generally linked with a living person, the lively energy of the Spirit. When water is limpid and still, it is usually linked with the Word of God. And I'll tell you another thing you can do. I'm just speaking to you all now. There are young Christians here and older Christians here. I'd be astonished if I sat down with you this evening and the doors were closed and we just spoke one-to-one. If in the course of the day or two gone by, there aren't things that are troubling you. Troubled you. You know that the secret is cleansing. And you get that by the feet washing of Christ. And that, I think, is the underlying teaching of this. He's teaching them about the value once and for all. What I say now, you, you don't understand, but you shall understand hereafter. Later on, they would get, I, I think they did grasp it, because I think John is kind of telling you in First John chapter 1, yeah, I got it. Because he then teaches it in chapter 1. You're familiar with First John chapter 1, verses 7 to the end, and the advocacy of Christ at the start. He's teaching what he learned here. And we all need cleansing. What about the sop? So not so much now the water as the sop. I, 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 um, I think that there are some very bas- basic le- lessons here. The Lord Jesus was kind to people who hated him. The Lord Jesus was considerate of people who could do nothing for him and in point of fact were capable of doing a great deal contrary to him. Because you do not misinterpret it. Don't look for the deep and the profound in that symbolic act. It's, it's a symbolic gesture. Just It's the, it's the, the master of ceremonies, the... the, the the head of the house, he takes, he dips the sop, whether it's unleavened bread, in the bowl. And it's a, a, he, as a gesture in the Middle East of t- favor, he hands it to Judas. And it's an act of respect. Now here's a big thing, this is very practical. Man. Do you respect people that don't respect you? Hard to do. And do you respect people that you have no respect for? In that profound sense of the word, you know that they are deeply untrustworthy and deeply antagonistic to you. I would be astonished if, again, I could take you into the confessional box after this meeting. You know, the lists of people, the numbers of people on your list would vary according to your personality. I think some people would have a kind of a volume or two to provide me with of the people that they didn't respect and were antagonistic to them. Some people just acquire these enemies at great speed and alacrity. (laughs) Others have few that they would so describe. But nevertheless, they will be there in your mind and in your life. And the question is how you treat them. And this parable here, this acted parable, uh, he, 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 even at the very death, do you remember how the Lord Jesus addressed Judas when he kissed him on the cheek? He said, friend, friend, whither art thou come? It's how we speak to these people really matters. Now, this is, this is, uh, thank goodness I know nothing about this meeting. So I can, uh, I haven't anybody in my mind because I actually hardly know any of your names or circumstances. So I can preach with complete impunity here. It really matters how you treat people that are antagonistic to you.
because that is the lesson of the shop. He was willing to extend, extend the hand of friendship, the gesture of compassion, and address him ever so gently in the garden, even though this was the man who had betrayed him. These are powerful truths. Now, the other thing, of course, behind it all, and this is the thing I think is, I mean, I, I'm not here to preach about election tonight. I'm not going to preach about election at all, because that would blow the roof off the building, probably. But I do want to point out to you just things that you need to think about when you read your Bible, is that I have? I am absolutely sure that Judas acted what they call volitionally that way. He chose to do it. He wanted to do it. He had a price negotiated for the betrayal before, I think, he left the upper room. And I have no doubt at all in my mind that if you cross-examined Judas that night, he would have given you maybe four or five good reasons why what he was doing, about to do, was, in his conscience at any justifiable. But what he chose to do, God had determined that he should do. He could not not do it. That's not revolutionary theology, by the way. That's just sober fact. There had to be a Judas who had to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, he had to, as Ahithophel did in the psalm that's quoted here, lift up his heel against his own familiar friend. It had to happen. And yet, he chose to do it. Now you see, I'm that rare beast that is neither a Calvinist nor an Arminian, neither a determinist, nor a free will theologian. I just find in my Bible two truths sit side by side that I cannot reconcile in my mind, but which Scripture teaches is true. Do you think the men that crucified the Lord Jesus drove the, hand, the nails through his hands and feet are going to be able to say at the great white throne, I am not eligible for punishment. I was only doing your will. Absolutely not. I think Pilate, in a moment of weakness, or perhaps prevarication or misjudgment. All of those things are true of his judgment, by the way. A weak governor shows what goes wrong when political responsibility is put into the hand of a judge, by the way, but that's a different story. The Sadducees and the Pharisees who had joined forces to procure the betrayal, they had their part to play in it. Judas had his part. You know, it's an astonishing thing if you see how many hands were involved in the death of Christ. Nearly every aspect of the nation, every even from the little squaddy who was just obeying orders. I don't think you call them squaddies over here. A squaddy is a, a name back home for a private in the British Army. I don't know what they would have been in the Roman Army. Just obeying orders. The Quaternion, or whatever they were, that sat down and watched them there. Do you think superior orders is going to be the defence of the great white throne? Necessity, is that going to be the defence of Pilate? Is expediency going to be the defence of Caiaphas? What is Judas's defence? Is he going to say, you made me do it? No. He chose to do it. And all of this is just a kind of little parable, as it were, of the fact that we are agents in a universe where there is an omnipotent God without whom nothing happens contrary or outside to his directing mind and will, and yet in which, miraculously, there are people who act on their own will. And this is just an example of that. Now, so that is the parable of cleansing, a parable of controlling, or the parable of what are called cutting or cleansing. 
And that is in a different form in Luke, in John chapter 15, rather. There's no, there's no bowl, there's no towel, there's no morsel. This is purely parabolic in character where he teaches about the true vine. Now, just a little bit of background here. You will know that in the Old Testament, the vine was a, a well-used image or picture of the nation of Israel. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 5, Hosea 10, and elsewhere, Israel is the vine. Now, when the Lord Jesus says, I am the true vine, what he is really saying is that I am the, 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 the personification and embodiment of all that they ever pointed forward to. Just like he said, I am the true light, or I am the true bread. What he means by that simply is this, is that I am the, the absolute perfect embodiment of all that Israel ought to have been nationally. I have been to the Lord personally. You remember that lovely word in Hosea 10, is it? Quoted by Matthew, out of Egypt have I called my son. And of course, the claimed fulfillment of that is in the flight of what was sometimes called the Holy Family out of Egypt after the persecution. Who was the son of whom Hosea spoke? It was Israel. And Israel came out in redemption from Egypt, out of Egypt. Have I called my son in redemption? And what Israel was nationally and corporately, he was personally. Everything that God wanted from the nation, the Lord Jesus perfectly embodied as a man. He was the true vine. You following the line of reasoning? So Christ individually and personally is the personal embodiment of all that Israel failed to be nationally and corporately. And then he says this. Now, I know this is a difficult passage, and I know I don't have an awful lot of time, so, and I know there are one or two exegetical difficulties in this, but I'm just going to kind of teach you the way I see it, and if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, that's absolutely fine. What he says really to the disciples is that I, the Lord Jesus, I am the vine, so the central stem, as it were. And out from that vine, branches sprout left and right. And these branches are, in the, in the parable, they are disciples, like the twelve, or the eleven, rather, at that stage, and like you and I. And what he is saying is, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, the A.V. says he taketh away, and I 100% I, I agree with that translation. Every reputable modern translation and older translation does not follow the line that some of our dear brethren have been uh, seduced into following, which is that this, the idea here is that every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he lifts up. Now, I would love to spend 10 minutes explaining why that is just so wrong on so many levels, but I think the AV, the ESV, the NIV, the, the new translation, the NLT, the RV, however you, wherever you look, you will find that uniformly they take this to mean, as I judge it to be, that he takes it away. He removes it. It's not bearing fruit, and he removes it. But then something very interesting, you would think, and every branch that beareth fruit, he leaves alone. You say, that's not what it says. It says, he purges it. And that's got to do with the idea of a new kind of cleansing, not now with the water of the word, but according to the, the parable illustration, with, with a, a pruning knife. Now, what he is teaching is what every person that knows anything about uh, the training of vines knows. that In order that a, a vine brings more clusters of grapes forth in a more productive and uh, desirable way is that you prune it. Now, I'm not really much of a green finger guy, but my wife is. And if she was here, I think she would agree which would be rare, but she does now and again agree with me. And what you do is you prune in order that more fruit is brought forth. Do you, ha do you have roses out here? I'm sure you're bound to have roses. Do you prune your roses? I'm sure you prune your roses. Now, the idea is that you get better rosebuds and, 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 a, and a more attractive plant if you cut it back. So what are you saying here is that every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. And then, now notice the AV says, I don't know what you're translating, now ye are clean, now the word is purged. It's the self-same word 
as purgeth in the previous verse. So now you're, he's purged, he says, through the word or the message which I have spoken unto you. Now, what this is saying is that it, as a Christian, in order to be fruitful for him, the Lord does not always guarantee us freedom from pain. He does not guarantee us freedom from disappointment. He does not guarantee us freedom from failure. Because in God's goodwill, the husbandman, he takes the sharp secretaries to us and he clips, he clips, and he clips. Not to hurt us, though hurting is an inevitable consequence of the process, but because he's a distant and remote objective that sometimes we are dimly, dimly aware of, which is that we might bring forth more fruit. With a man that preached in our country and was in the assembly that I am now in called Robert McFeet, and uh, I remember Robert saying one day that if it wasn't for the Lord working this kind of way in our life, just to put it in Robert's language, what kind of creatures would we be? What kind of creature would you be if everything went your way? Hmm? What kind of Christian would you be if everything you wanted came to pass? What kind of Christian would you be if nothing ever went wrong? You see, what the Lord is teaching here, I think what he's doing as he does develop in greater detail in chapter 16 is that he says it's through his word, so it's through his teaching. Later on, he will speak to them of days of persecution that will break over the church after he has returned to heaven. Days of, in the opening words of chapter 6, he says, they'll, they'll cast you out of the synagogue, and in doing that, they'll think they're doing God's service. And excommunication was a humiliation for a Jew, cut off from his family, a pariah in his own community. And you know, that is just a cut of the knife. And then he says, they, they, they even will kill you. And they think they're doing God's service. And he's speaking prophetically about the early days of testimony. And you know, sometimes it's the case where the word of God, when it's preached to us, is like a sharp knife. A lot of Christians don't like that very much. I'm not saying it's widespread necessarily, and I'm not saying I can really complain about it because I shouldn't really complain anyway. But bear in mind that when a preacher says a thing that you don't enjoy listening to, don't be swift to judge his motive, and don't be swift to assume that he's wrong. We were talking just at the tea table there about a great risk that exists today in the meetings. I think the meetings are not, I'll be a bit gloomy now, I don't think the, move, the meetings are generally speaking moving in a good direction at the minute. I'm not saying that there's a lack of encouragement, and there is, and I'm not saying that things aren't better some places than others. But I do think that amongst us at the minute there's a, a reluctance to listen to ministry that cuts across our lifestyle and challenges us as to the way that we live. That's my personal experience, is that when people, when you say something people don't agree with, they get angry with you. You may not agree with what I say, but you owe it to the Lord to pray about it and think about it before you you get angry. Because the Word of God is not a feather duster. It's not like what you learn about in Second Timothy. They heap to themselves teachers. The, the, the card at the back of the hall, the rota of speakers, is jam-packed with people coming to your hall. But they only have one uniting characteristic. 
is they're never going to upset you. And they tickle your ears. I was tickling the ears of your dog this morning and <laughs> I was getting these sort of one of those moments where the dog looks up into your eyes and your heart melts. You know, the saints are like that. You could all look, <laughs> as I tell you, just what you want to hear. And you'll walk out and your ears have been tickled. Now, I know you would be absolutely right if you say that there are days when they didn't tickle your ears, they cut them off. And I'm not at all applauding aggressive or um, impudent preaching. I'm not doing that. But what I am saying is the Lord's word, the Logos, is the collective truth of Scripture rather than the, the rhema further than the spoken words. The word of God sometimes hurts. And you need to remember that when it hurts, sometimes it's for your good. Because in the trimming of the branches, the object is the bringing forth of fruit. And then he says, how, how does fruit come about? He says, well, now I, this is where exegetically I can maybe part company with some of our dear brethren. I, I think that when he speaks about every branch in me, he's talking, that's a different idea from verse 4, which is abiding in me. You know, if you, you look at a, a branch that is not bearing any fruit on a vine, if you run your eye down uh, the branch, that superficially it'll look much the same colour as all the other branches that are bearing fruit, and it's joined to the central stem, and superficially it's in the vine. That's true of all these branches, by the way, even the ones that are definitely the unsaved that are tossed onto the fire at the end in verse 6. They were all once in the vine. And I think that's the point of verse 2. Every last one of them was in. Now, that didn't mean they were saved. I actually think, you know who I think is behind all of this? Judas. Right to the very death. Lord, is it I? And then when the sop's handed to him, and for some reason they don't get the fact that he's the betrayer, they kind of think, well, the Lord's given him the sop and sent him out because he wants him to... Uh, he keeps the bag and maybe he's going to buy something for the Passover meal or, or going to give a, some money to the poor. They, give a benign, they have a benign uh, instinct of explanation for the man that scurried out the door that it never crossed their mind, astonishingly, that he was the betrayer. And the way I read it, they would say, we thought he was in the vine. Everything looked externally just right. Ethnically, in the vine, where the vine is Israel. Ethnically, religiously, in the vine. But one thing that was characteristic of Judas, and I think the Lord is getting at here, is that he didn't bear fruit. And I think that is the characteristic, the key characteristic of those that are not just in it, but abide in it. There's a continuance. What did Judas do? He didn't abide in the Lord. He peeled off, he broke away, he betrayed the Lord, he didn't remain. But he says, those that abide in the vine, and moreover, I abide in you, that mutual communion, verse 4, that comes from true fellowship with Christ. Verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except to abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. So what he's saying is that if we're going to bring forth fruit in our lives that's pleasurable to God, it will come about through communion with Christ. We, you know, we run the grave risk today of, of taking the Christ out of Christianity. We do that in the meetings all the time, you know. I do firmly believe there are some people who kind of seem to think the meeting is more important than the Savior. All that the meeting is, is... A display of Christ, that's what it should be, a pillar and ground of the truth, upholding him. We are here to, to display Christ, to work out the values and virtues of Christ, and to testify to him, and to remember him, and to pray to him, and to worship him. He is the heart of it all. And collectively and individually, it's only in the measure in which we are in, in communion with him that fruit is born. Verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. That's, that's our polycarp, carpus polis, much fruit. 
for without me you can do nothing. Then he says that, now I think this verse here, now this, I'm a, I think there are two people in this section. Some people think there are three. Some people think there's a Christian who doesn't bear fruit, but is nevertheless in the vine and just unproduct, unproductive. And they think that when he's taken away, this is the taking away of judgment of First Corinthians. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Uh, they think, take it that it's that kind of guy. And then there's the productive Christian, and then there's the apostate who's tossed into the fire. So they say three, I see two, because I think there are only fruit-bearing Christians, and then there are non-fruit-bearing, and it's the non-fruit-bearing that are, first of all, taken away in verse 2, and then greater details supplied in verse 6. They're cast forth as a branch and is withered, so it's broken off, verse 2, verse 6, lies in the ground, the sap goes out of it, they just become dry as dust, and when the autumn comes, the, 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 the guys that work in the vineyard gather all these branch, broken branches up and they toss them on the fire, and I think that's eternal judgment. And then he says, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, this is a great theme in John's call. I'm going to return to it again because you never hear really much about this in the meetings. Is that what, what the, the, the Bible teaches and the Lord teaches is that we should be confident prayers. Do you pray? And are you a diffident, bashful, prayer who's scared to ask God for stuff. Well, what are you teaching here is that the, the more we are in fellowship with Christ and the more his life is worked out, the greater our confidence in prayer. And it's not just our confidence in God grows, but he answers us more regularly. You scarcely believe that, would you? In, is that God is more willing to, I've said this something recently and it's just true, you know, God answers some people's prayers more readily than he does others. Because this passage teaches, as First John teaches, as verse 13 of chapter 14 teaches, that God's ear and God's heart is towards those that abide in him. And your prayer life could be revolutionized. And the power you have with God could be transformed the deeper your communion with him becomes. Now, I'll just close with this. I have heard for a long time that the fruit here is not souls being saved in the gospel, but it's Christ-like character being formed. And I just believe that, you know, because I believe preachers, just like you. I discovered something that I think they might have gone a little bit wrong on. Tell you why I think they've gone wrong. Just look at the chapter. And the discussion he, and I'll close with this, he gives a fruit. So verse 8, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So I accept that a confident prayer life and the features of Christ present in the life are, are an example of clusters of grapes on the vine. But look what um, verse 16 says, just a little bit further down. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Now, I think that undermines the argument that it's not people being saved. Because I actually think what he's doing here is anticipating the spread of the gospel. In Acts 2, when the men he was speaking to would be the men that would start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I've ordained, I've commanded you that you go. And in going, which is evidently the going out in service, that you bring forth fruit. And more than that, that the work that you see done is not a transitory work that is gone in a moment, but it remains. Enduring work. And therefore I have come round to the opinion that a, a, a Christian who is fruitful is not only one that prays and one who exhibits the features of Christ in his life, but actually one who testifies to people. And through his or her testimony, people are one for Christ. So, there we have it. So that's, here endeth the second lesson. And tomorrow evening, I think, though I'm not committing myself to it,
a lot depend how my study go tomorrow, studies go tomorrow morning. But I, I, what I would like to cover tomorrow evening is, you have been noticed I've been alliterating everything, haven't you? I sometimes feel all my efforts are wasted in the saints. I have been, in fact, I haven't even given you all my alliteration. I'll give one of these nights, I'll maybe tell you what they all are. But, um, so we looked at the paraclete, and here uh, this evening we looked at the parables. And so tomorrow evening, I think what we will do is we'll look at the prophecies of the upper room. And if you want a hint, I think tomorrow actually is quite interesting. So even if you've yawned your way through the first two meetings, you might find it interesting to see prophecies that took place like half an hour after they were uttered. I think we're going to find that. We're used to the idea of prophecy being long-distance stuff, like a century or a dispensation goes by. The prophecies of the upper room in this section here, they kind of took place just with, literally within hours of them being uttered, and that is quite an interesting topic in its own right. So that's tomorrow. We'll close.